Welcome back to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, and a great short story from T.S. Arthur. The first one we've done, but certainly not the last. Timothy Shea Arthur, born June 6, 1809, lived through March 6, 1885, was a popular 19th century American author, most famous for his temperance novel, Ten Nights in a Bar Room and What I Saw There, which he wrote in 1854. His novel, which demonized alcohol and the evils of overconsumption, held great sway over the American public and moved the temperance movement further ahead, moving that whiskey bottle further from hand. He wrote a large number of short stories which were printed in Godey's Ladies Book, the most popular pre-Civil War era magazine in America. His prolific stories and novels promoted the sound values, beliefs, and habits of the well-mannered middle class. How he could have spent ten nights in a barroom without drinking or getting in a fight is left up to our imaginations. An Angel in Disguise, today's story, was featured in Arthur's collection After a Shadow and Other Stories. And now, An Angel in Disguise by T.S. Arthur. Idleness, vice, and intemperance had done their miserable work, and the dead mother lay cold and still amid her wretched children. She had fallen upon the threshold of her own door in a drunken fit, and died in the presence of her frightened little ones. Death touches the spring of our common humanity. This woman had been despised, scoffed at, and angrily denounced by nearly every man, woman, and child in the village. But now, as the fact of her death was passed from lip to lip in subdued tones, pity took the place of anger and sorrow of denunciation. Neighbors went hastily to the old tumble-down hut in which she had secured little more than a place of shelter from summer heats and winter cold, some with grave clothes for a decent interment of the body, and some with food for the half-starved children, three in number. Of these, John, the oldest, a boy of twelve, was a stout lad, able to earn his living with any farmer. Kate, between ten and eleven, was a bright, active girl, out of whom something clever might be made, if in good hands. But poor little Maggie, the youngest, was hopelessly diseased. Two years before, a fall from a window had injured her spine, and she had not been able to leave her bed since, except when lifted in the arms of her mother. What is to be done with the children? That was the chief question now. The dead mother would go underground and be forever beyond all care or concern of the villagers. But the children must not be left to starve. After considering the matter and taking it over with his wife, Farmer Jones said that he would take John and do well by him, now that his mother was out of the way. And Mrs. Ellis, who had been looking for a bound girl, concluded that it would be charitable in her to make choice of Katie, even though she was too young to be of much use for several years. I could do much better, I know, said Mrs. Ellis, but as no one seems inclined to take her, I must act from a sense of duty, and expect to have trouble with the child, for she's an undisciplined thing, used to having her own way. But no one said, I'll take Maggie. Pitying glances were cast on her wan and wasted form, and thoughts were troubled on her account. Mothers brought cast-off garments and, removing her soiled and ragged clothes, dressed her in clean attire, 
The sad eyes and patient face of the little one touched many hearts, and even knocked at them for entrance. But none opened to take her in. Who wanted a bedridden child? "'Take her to the poorhouse,' said a rough man, of whom the question, "'What's to be done with Maggie?' was asked. "'Nobody's going to be bothered with her.' "'The poorhouse is a sad place for a sick and helpless child,' answered one. "'For your child or mine,' said the other, lately speaking. "'But for Tisbrat, it'll prove a blessed change. "'She will be kept clean, have healthy food, and be doctored, "'which is more than can be said of her past condition.' There was reason in that, but still, it didn't satisfy. The day following the day of the death was made the day of burial. A few neighbors were at the miserable hovel, but none followed the dead cart as it bore the unhonored remains to its pauper grave. Farmer Jones, after the coffin was taken out, placed John in his wagon and drove away, satisfied that he'd done his part. Mrs. Ellis spoke to Kate with a hurried air. "'Bid your sister good-bye,' and drew the tearful children apart ere scarcely their lips had touched in a sobbing farewell. Hastily others went out, some glancing at Maggie, and some resolutely refraining from a look until all had gone. She was alone. Just beyond the threshold, Joe Thompson, the wheelwright, paused, and said to the blacksmith's wife, who was hastening off with the rest, it is a cruel thing to leave her so. Then take her to the poorhouse. She'll have to go there, answered the blacksmith's wife, springing away and leaving Joe behind. For a little while the man stood with a puzzled air. Then he turned back and went into the hovel again. Maggie, with painful effort, had raised herself to an upright position and was sitting on the bed, straining her eyes upon the door out of which all had just departed. A vague terror had come into her thin, white face. "'Oh, Mr. Thompson!' she cried out, catching her suspended breath. "'Don't leave me here all alone!' Though rough in exterior, Joe Thompson, the wheelwright, had a heart, and it was very tender in some places. He liked children, and was pleased to have them come to his shop, where sleds and wagons were made, or mended for the village lads, without a draft on their hoarded sixpences. "'No, dear,' he answered, in a kind voice, going to the bed and stooping down over the child. "'You shan't be left alone here.' Then he wrapped her with the gentleness, almost of a woman, in the clean bedclothes which some neighbor had brought, and, lifting her in his strong arms, bore her out into the air and across the field that lay between the hovel and his home. Joe Thompson's wife, who happened to be childless, was not a woman of saintly temper, nor much given to self-denial for others' good, and Joe had well-grounded doubts touching the manner of greeting he should receive on his arrival. Mrs. Thompson saw him approaching from the window, and with ruffling feathers met him a few paces from the door as he opened the garden gate and came in. He bore a precious burden, and he felt it to be so. As his arms held the sick child to his breast, a sphere of tenderness went out from her and penetrated his feelings. A bond had already corded itself around them both, and love was springing into life. "'What have you there?' sharply questioned Mrs. Thompson. 
Joe felt the child start and shrink against him. He did not reply, except by a look that was pleading and cautionary, that said, Wait a moment for explanations, and be gentle. And, passing in, carried Maggie to the small chamber on the first floor, and laid her on a bed. Then, stepping back, he shut the door, and stood face to face with his vinegar-tempered wife in the passageway outside. "'You haven't brought home that sick brat!' Anger and astonishment were in the tones of Mrs. Joe Thompson. Her face was in a flame. "'I think women's hearts are sometimes very hard,' said Joe. Usually Joe Thompson got out of his wife's way, or kept rigidly silent and non-combative when she fired up on any subject. It was with some surprise, therefore, that she now encountered a firmly set countenance and a resolute pair of eyes. Women's hearts are not half so hard as men's. Joe saw by a quick intuition that his resolute bearing had impressed his wife, and he answered quickly, and with real indignation. Be that as it may, every woman at the funeral turned her eyes steadily from the sick child's face, and when the cart went off with her dead mother, they hurried away and left her alone, in that old hut, with the sun not an hour in the sky. "'Where were John and Kate?' asked Mrs. Thompson. Farmer Jones tossed John into his wagon and drove off. Katie went home with Mrs. Ellis, but nobody wanted this poor sick one. "'Send her to the poorhouse,' was the cry. "'Why didn't you let her go, then? What did you bring her here for?' "'She can't walk to the poorhouse,' said Joe. "'Somebody's arms must carry her, "'and mine are strong enough for that task.' "'Then why didn't you keep on? "'Why did you stop here?' demanded the wife. "'Because I'm not apt to go on fool's errands. "'The guardians must first be seen and a permit obtained.' "'There was no gain saying this. "'When will you see the guardians?' was asked, with irrepressible impatience. "'Tomorrow. Why put it off till tomorrow? Go at once for the permit, and get the whole thing off your hands tonight.' "'Jane?' said the wheelwright, with an impressiveness of tone that greatly subdued his wife. "'I read in the Bible sometimes, and find much said about little children. How the Savior rebuked the disciples who would not receive them. How he took them up in his arms.' and blessed them, and how he said that whosoever gave them even a cup of cold water should not go unrewarded. Now it's a small thing for us to keep this poor motherless little one for a single night, to be kind to her for a single night, to make her life comfortable for a single night. The voice of the strong, rough man shook, and he turned his head away so that the moisture in his eyes might not be seen. Mrs. Thompson did not answer, but a soft feeling crept into her heart. "'Look at her kindly, Jane. Speak to her kindly,' said Joe. "'Think of her dead mother, and the loneliness, the pain, and the sorrow that must be on all her coming life.' The softness of his heart gave unwanted eloquence to his lips. Mrs. Thompson did not reply but presently turned towards the little chamber where her husband had deposited Maggie, and, 
pushing open the door, went quietly in. Joe did not follow. He saw that her state had changed and felt that it would be best to leave her alone with the child. So he went to his shop, which stood near the house, and worked until dusky evening released him from labor. A light shining through the little chamber windows was the first object that attracted his attention when he turned toward the house. It was a good omen. The path led him by these windows, and when opposite, he could not help pausing to look in. It was now dark enough outside to screen him from observation. Maggie lay, a little raised on the pillow, with the lamp shining full upon her face. Mrs. Thompson was sitting by the bed, talking to the child, but her back was towards the window, so that her countenance was not seen. From Maggie's face, therefore, Joe must read the character of their intercourse. He saw that Maggie's eyes were intently fixed upon his wife, that now and then a few words came, as if in answers from her lips, that her expression was sad and tender, but saw nothing of bitterness or pain. A deep-drawn breath was followed by one of relief, as a weight lifted itself from his heart. On entering, Joe did not go immediately to the little chamber. His heavy tread about the kitchen brought his wife somewhat hurriedly from the room where she had been with Maggie. Joe thought it best not to refer to the child, nor to manifest any concern in regard to her. "'How soon will supper be ready?' he asked. "'Right soon,' answered Mrs. Thompson, beginning to bustle about. There was no asperity in her voice. After washing from his hands and face the dust and soil of work, Joe left the kitchen and went to the little bedroom. A pair of large, bright eyes looked up at him from the snowy bed, looked at him tenderly, gratefully, pleadingly. How his heart swelled! Joe sat down, and now, for the first time, examining the thin frame carefully under the lamplight, saw that it was an attractive face, and full of a childish sweetness which suffering had not been able to obliterate. "'Your name is Maggie?' he said, as he sat down and took her soft little hand in his. "'Yes, sir.' Her voice struck a chord that quivered in a low strain of music. "'Have you been sick long?' "'Yes, sir. Has the doctor been to see you?' "'He, he used to come.' "'But not lately?' "'No, sir.' "'Have you any pain?' "'Sometimes, but not now.' "'When had you pain?' "'This morning my side ached, and my back hurt when you carried me.' "'It hurts you to be lifted or moved about?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Your side doesn't ache now?' "'No, sir.' "'Does it ache a great deal?' Yes, sir, but it hasn't ached any since I've been on this soft bed. The soft bed feels good? Oh, yes, sir. What a satisfaction, mingled with gratitude, was in her voice. Supper is ready, said Mrs. Thompson, looking into the room a little while afterwards. Joe glanced from his wife's face to that of Maggie. She understood him and answered, She can wait until we're done. "'Then I will bring her something to eat.' "'There was an effort at indifference on the part of Mrs. Thompson, 
but her husband had seen her through the window and understood that the coldness was assumed. Joe waited after sitting down to the table for his wife to introduce the subject uppermost in both of their thoughts, but she kept silent on that theme for many minutes, and he maintained a like reserve. At last she said abruptly, "'What are you going to do with the child?' "'I thought you understood me that she was to go to the poorhouse,' replied Joe, as if surprised at her question. Mrs. Thompson looked rather strangely at her husband for some moments, and then dropped her eyes. The subject was not again referred to during the meal. At its close, Mrs. Thompson toasted a slice of bread and softened it with milk and butter, adding to this a cup of tea, and she took them to Maggie, and held the small waiter on which she had placed them while the hungry child ate with every sign of pleasure. "'Is it good?' asked Mrs. Thompson, seeing with what a keen relish the food was taken. The child paused with the cup in her hand and answered with a look of gratitude that awoke to new life old human feelings which had been slumbering in her heart for half a score of years. "'We'll keep her a day or two longer. She is so weak and helpless,' said Mrs. Joe Thompson in answer to her husband's remark at breakfast time on the next morning that he must step down and see the guardians of the poor about Maggie. But she'll be so much in your way, said Joe. I shan't mind that for a day or two, poor thing. Joe did not see the guardians of the poor on that day, on the next, nor in the day following. In fact, he never saw them at all on Maggie's account, for in less than a week Mrs. Joe Thompson would as soon leave thought of taking up her own abode in the almshouse as sending Maggie there. What light and blessing did that sick and helpless child bring to the home of Joe Thompson, the poor wheelwright? It had been dark and cold and miserable there for a long time, just because his wife had nothing to love and care for out of herself, and so became sore, irritable, ill-tempered, and self-afflicting in the desolation of her woman's nature. Now the sweetness of that sick child, looking ever to her in love, patience, and gratitude, was as honey to her soul, and she carried in her heart, as well as in her arms, a precious burden. As for Joe Thompson, there was not a man in all the neighborhood who drank daily of a more precious wine of life than he. An angel had come into his house, disguised as a sick, helpless, and miserable child, and filled all its dreary chambers with a sunshine of love. Thank you for joining us at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. We've had a bunch of new reviews lately, and we'd like to share them with you now. And we hope that you can take a minute, and please do send us a review if you enjoy our stories. Thank you very much. Here they are. Beginning with, and this one just came in today, 1001 Stories, 5 Stars. From Australia, this is one of the most professional podcasts I have ever heard. I fell in love with short stories as a young lad. Every week I'm like a one-eyed cat in a fish shop just waiting for your next offering. This time, as an adult, I listened to each story two or three times, savoring each tale by such highly rated historical authors being read by a professional without equal. Brilliant. Bless everyone involved in the production of 1001 Stories. 
That from Phantom Author, Apple Podcast, Australia. And that just arrived today. And this one, Helps Me Sleep and Pay Attention. Five stars. In this day and age of social media and 500 channels and access to everything, I developed bad habits, which did two things. It gave me bad sleeping habits, and it shortened my attention span. I couldn't pay attention to anything. And I found this podcast. I began listening to it while relaxing. I began to notice that I was paying attention. Now I also put it on for 30 minutes before bed, and I sleep great. I shut off everything and just close my eyes and listen. I really enjoy it and appreciate all the work they put into making this and doing it for free. What a great price. To all the naysayers leaving bad reviews, I read your reviews and I disagree 100%. For me, these are great. Thank you for your time and passion. I mean this sincerely. That from Huntaku, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, a great find, five stars. I recently discovered this podcast, and it is fast becoming my favorite. I look forward to listening to the stories on my way to work or as I take a morning or evening walk. It is a great way to become familiar or to remember some of the great classic short stories and authors throughout time. I am especially enjoying the Sherlock Holmes mysteries and anxiously await more of them to be added. That one from Showman000, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, Best Story Podcast, five stars. I've listened to a few story podcasts, and this one is the best by far. John has a voice that pulls you in and immerses you in the stories. Would highly recommend for anyone who needs something to listen to on a road trip or cleaning your house. It keeps your mind occupied and intrigued. And that one from B Loves Books, Apple Podcast Canada. And this one, Riveting Stories, five stars. Between the excellent story selection and John's brilliant voice, this podcast has a fantastic way to hear many short stories by various authors. I've fallen in love with O. Henry and Lovecraft as a direct result of this stream. I'm now even reading a wider selection of authors, all thanks to the work John has done. John, you're my literary hero. Please keep up the good work. And if you have any more Lovecraft, please do read. Your voice is excellent. That's Eva Draif, Apple Podcast, India. I just want to thank you all very much. I'm very much humbled by your comments and very appreciative that you take the time to tell us that you love the stories. I hope we're, I think we're achieving bringing great literary works, at least in the short story format, back to life here at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. And that was the reason I wanted to do it, to, to get them out there and to celebrate just how well written they were and why they're called classics. Thank you all so very, very much. Our shows come out every Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And don't forget to catch our other shows, 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, 1001 Stories for the Road, and 1001 Radio Days. Thank you all very much, and we'll be back soon.